Welcome to the Coaching in Clubland podcast. My name is Mitch Johnston and I'll be your host. Coaching in Clubland is an Aussie podcast designed for current and aspiring coaches from all levels and across a range of sports to share their experiences about the caper. We discuss the roller coaster that is the coaching experience, the highs, the lows, the joys and the pitfalls. I caught the coaching bug as a teenager and have been fortunate enough to hold various coaching roles within cricket and footy clubs over the last 15 years. Through these experiences and my interactions as a player, I've come across many great and some not so great coaches in Clubland. We'll aim to keep things simple, practical and relatable so that you can apply these insights to your own coaching experiences. Sit back, grab a cuppa and please enjoy the episode. In this episode of Coaching in Clubland, we speak to Shane Dietz. As a wicketkeeper batsman, Shane had a 10-year first-class career with the South Australian Redbacks, playing alongside the likes of Darren Lehman, Greg Blewett and Sean Tate. He played 66 Sheffield Shield games with five centuries and a high score of 154 before his playing career ended in 2007-2008. Following his playing career, Dietzie has forged a formidable career in coaching and truly is a globe-trotting coach. He's had experience as an assistant coach with Wellington in New Zealand, was the Bangladesh women's coach for the 2014 T20 World Cup, did amazing things with Vanuatu as a coach, CEO and player at the ripe old age of 42 and after a hip replacement, and now is the head coach of the Netherlands women's team. In our chat, we talk about how you extract the most out of elite talent, developing cricket in the associate nations, and the differences between coaching men and women. Welcome to the Coaching Clubland podcast, Shane Dietz. Hey, Mitch. How are you going? Thanks for the invite. Looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, no, we're going well here, mate. Although Melbourne town looks like a bit of a lockdown's imminent. And I'm just interested in what's happening in Holland at the moment, mate. Obviously, you've been recently appointed the Netherlands women's uh, national coach. What's the COVID situation over in the Netherlands at the moment? Yeah, it hasn't been a good time for the Dutchies over the past you know, year or so. Uh, lots of cases, still around 4,000 a day, but it's going down a lot. It was about 8,000 when I arrived. A few restrictions in place. I have to wear a mask when you go around anywhere in town, into shops, etc. cetera. Uh, restaurants and cafes, which is Pubs basically are still closed unless they've got an outdoor area, which can stay up until 8 p.m. So there's not a lot happening, but uh, everyone sort of gets on with it. And uh, the vaccine's been rolled out reasonably well so far. Uh, not as good as the UK, I would say, but uh, my, my in-laws have uh, got theirs done and it's moving down to the younger people around 50, under 50, hopefully soon. And they're looking at end of June, July, everyone will be vaccinated, which hopefully will happen. And then, yeah, we can open up a bit more. But yeah, things are definitely on the improve and hopefully, fingers crossed, it stays the same way. And what's been the impact on cricket and uh, getting out there in the middle for the girls? Yeah, really tough. Club cricket has just started, which is which is good, but it's only the top women's competition and the top men's competition. So None of the second team or lower grades um, or Division Two, et cetera, are playing. So there's only a, a few teams in those competitions and they have to have a test on a, their first training session of the week and before the game. So all the teams have to go to their club, all get tested. Once the test is done, then they can go to the games and obviously there's no crowd, et cetera, being able to go watch. But the national teams actually had a um, dispensation to train from around January in smaller groups. We've been lucky enough to be able to train as a national team since then. When I arrived, it was sort of similar in groups of six was the max per, per session. And the, the two groups, when they're you know, interchanging, they couldn't mingle with each other and all those sort of things. 
But we didn't wear masks. We sort of just kept a two-metre distance, and it went pretty well. We did have a couple of cases in our team. Uh, a couple of girls from school picked up the virus who had been at training, and it didn't spread to anyone else. So obviously the measures we put in place succeeded. But, yeah, I've had my fair share of cotton buds shoved up the old Lionel Rose <laughs> about five or six times. So I'm used to the test now. So it <laughs> has been a few weeks since I've had one. It's all good, but but they do it really well. You just drive through into this little um like marquee, stay in your car, you stick your head out the car, and they stick the, the thing in your nose, and away you go, and you know within 24 hours. So things like that, the Dutchies always do brilliantly. Well organized. Very organized people, aren't they? Yeah. Extremely so. That's a good thing coming from the Vanuatu, which is pretty much chaos yeah. all the time. Mate, you would know yourself. Beautiful change. Oh. Yeah. It's just, yeah, that, that's the things that we're really enjoying. <laughs> things organised. How did the role come about? You got appointed in December, and I believe your wife's Dutch as well. How did the role come to be? I was just online, uh, always keep an eye open of jobs online around the world. Um, we did want to probably come back here in a couple of years' time, but there was no immediate uh, plan to leave Vanuatu. We were both in good jobs and enjoying life there. Um, but the job was advertised, so I thought I'd apply. I think they said they had 92 applicants. And lucky enough, I did a decent interview, I guess, and got the role. And we thought, yeah, we might as well take it and take the chance to be in the Netherlands. My research on the team was a yeah, young, young team, up and coming. Had some good World Cup qualifiers coming up this year. So I think it was a good opportunity. And... Yeah, as I said, I love time in Vanuatu, but it was probably a chance we couldn't turn down and come back to my wife's home country. And I've spent some time here in the past, so I love the place. And it's been, I think, a good decision and no regrets so far. And what's the quality of female cricket like in the Netherlands in terms of, you know, numbers, standard, turf wickets, etc.? Numbers have probably dwindled over the last decade or so. You know, they were in the World Cup 20 years ago and around always the top 10 ranked team in the world. Uh, that's gone back to now we're 21 ranked in the world. I think club level, uh, there was a number thrown around like 15 years ago, there were 16 women's clubs or teams, and now there's about eight, only five playing in the longer format, which we're playing at the moment, and eight will play in the, the T20 competition. So numbers have dwindled a lot, as probably cricket has around the world. I think numbers are getting smaller and smaller in some places. Um I think the men's competition here has sustained a pretty good following. Um, but, yeah, the women's team, not sure why it's happened, but that's what's happened and that's where we're at. So as part of the job, I really wanted to help off the pitch, build those numbers and set up some programs to rejuvenate the women's game and make it exciting and cool and get more girls involved. You know, women's hockey and women's football is a huge, both are huge sports here. Women's soccer, not football, sorry. They're both big sports here, so we're competing with, with those sports. But, you know, we want to make cricket cool again and hopefully we'll get the numbers back up. And do you have any upcoming fixtures in the next few months for, for your team? Well, it's an ongoing saga. Uh, our 50-over competition, which is a global World Cup qualifier, which has the likes of West Indies, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Thailand, uh, etc. That was meant to be last year. Then it was meant to be June in Sri Lanka, but obviously the current situation, that's been postponed to December with no confirmed dates. We do have uh, the T20 European qualifier at the end of August. Still some um, 
conjecture around that, whether that's going ahead or what date and what country. Um, at the moment, it's in Scotland. So we'll just go by that plan. So that's T20 come up in August. And we're trying to do a couple of tours within Europe uh, beforehand to prepare for that tournament. Um, besides that, it's just club cricket full of girls. And hopefully we can nail down some tournaments to prepare for those uh, World Cup qualifiers. It must be hard to motivate the national girls just with that uncertainty as to when the next fixture actually is. What are some of the things you're doing to keep the girls incentivized? Yeah, I think uh, over the last year and a half, we've had so many tournaments postponed and cancelled. So, the, But the girls, uh, unlike the men, who are a bit more professional here. They're all amateur and all work, all go to school, and they've got so much passion and energy for cricket. To motivate them is not that hard. It's been um, quite easy. So they just love the game. I think they just get disappointed that uh, they're not going away or having a tour. But the tours aren't cancelled. You're just postponed. So we're definitely going to have some tours. And then we'll probably have a run of a lot of tours in the next year and a half. But it's, it's I keep saying it's not a bad time to like, with a new coach in to let's sit down, look at your game, where you're at. Time to really make changes in technique and things like that is the time now, which which is perfect scenario for myself. And I was pretty happy that June was um, postponed because it got me gave me a chance to really work with the girls a bit more and then try to get them the way I want them to play cricket and get them to the level I think they can be. So that's how we'll be approaching it. And fingers crossed, it's all going pretty well. I've seen a lot of improvements. How I want to see the improvements and. I think we'll be in good shape coming out of tournaments a bit later. And DT shifting focus to your first class career. You played for South Australia for 10 years, which is uh, an outstanding achievement. And I reckon in the, in the golden era of Australian cricket too. I guess you found yourself in and out of the side. So, you know, thinking about you as the player, was there enough communication and role definition given to you from your you know coaches and selectors at the time to help you nail down a position? I would probably say no. Um, not that I'm making excuses or anything. I just don't think at the time it was like the communication of coaches and players and selectors was always that big. It was, it was pretty still amateur when I first started. I think contracts came in about 98, 99. That was when I made my debut around that time. So I think it was still a little bit of a amateur approach. You got picked, you got picked. If you didn't, you didn't. Yeah, one game I'm opening the batting. Next time I'm wiki-keeping. There was a little bit of communication around it though, but not a great deal. I just get my head down and get prepared to do everything. And you missed out bowling, mate. Two first-class wickets at the Gabba. Stuart Law, Andrew Simons, don't forget that. So you retweet that every second day, don't you? Yeah, I, I do, mate. I do. That's <laughs> the proudest moment. But, yeah, no, I, I think yeah, I think if it was now, things would have been handled a lot differently and there was no right or wrong or there was no excuse that could have been done better or worse. I don't have any gripes about it. I'm not worried too much about it. But have 10 years, which, yeah. Uh, was probably more than I ever expected to play. So um, no complaints at all. And, and some of the coaches at the Redbacks, was it a bit of a revolving door at the time or did you have a couple of mainstays that were there for the you know majority of your career? Yeah, I had mainly two. It was Greg Chappell for the first five years, then Wayne Phillips for four years after, and then one year of Mark Sorrell. And then that time, there was numerous assistant coaches, Jamie Siddons, Tim Nielsen, a few fast bowling coaches, obviously, I didn't have to deal with them. But uh, no, the coaches didn't change a lot. They're very, both very different. Chapel and Phillips did learn some good things from them and some things I would definitely do differently from watching the way they go about things. But as I said before, 
coaching really wasn't what it is today, I don't think. It was more like ex-players getting in the role and just doing their best and trying their hardest without all the resources that go around it too, with analysts and assist, heaps of assistants and full-time. Yeah, go to a games, it was one coach on tour, not you know three or four. So I think it's a very different environment now. But those guys, they, they tried their hardest and did a reasonable job. We didn't win much, so maybe they didn't do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> and you played you play alongside some amazingly talented, you know, cricketers, Darren Lehman, uh, Sean Tate. I guess if you were coaching them now, you know, with, with their, you know, the natural talent they possess, how would you handle them as a coach? Yeah, good question. Even those two guys um, are naturally talented. They're still very different people and... Some guys, sometimes the most talented guys that you see on TV or playing with or against inside, and they look like they're playing with freedom and and quite relaxed. And half the time they might not be. They're completely different on the inside. So I just think everyone's a different individual and everyone needs to be approached differently. If you pick those examples, you know, Lehman really knew his own game so well. And it was basically you just need to support him and him to keep playing the way he's playing but he he was an amazing cricket brain so that that guy's just basically what what do you need where sean tate was completely different you know he missed some time of cricket through some mental issues so that's a completely different scenario even though he's a really talented player i think he didn't get handled well in different situations um even the australian team so i think it's a yeah, it's an individual case whether they're talented or not there still, still need to be a plan in place to get the best out of them. And there's probably some more talented players than those guys who didn't make it or go as far as them. So I think the talent is, a, is, a, is an interesting question on how we, we frame our, our conversation of, around that. Yes, they're talented. And you always look at Steve and Mark Wall. Everyone thought Mark Wall was a more talented one. Steve Wall, a grittier one. When you talk to Mark Wall, he always says, I was gritty and I was determined as well. And so mm. Steve Wall was a ridiculously talented individual. So I think their personalities probably refrain, uh, change the way you approach that, that question or that conversation. So, But it, it's definitely a, a different thing. And some talented players, you, you want to just, I guess, let them be able to express their talent but also within the boundaries of the team environment, they've got to be not individuals and do things their own way. There's definitely that team aspect as well. So all I could say is that everyone's a bit different. So every situation has got to be, every person's got to have that plan, individual plan around them. And I guess that one size fits all coaching approach, you know, is pretty much dead and buried, I'd say. And those, those guys are examples that, you know, you couldn't treat them the same, they have different needs and, different skill sets and uh, different things going on in their life, which would, you know, affect the day-to-day training stuff and, and obviously match day as well. Now, DT, after your career ended uh, in 2007-8, you were appointed the high-performance coach for Wellington. And that's what I really like about your coaching journey, that you haven't just sort of gone back to, to grade cricket or stuck around the system as an underage coach in, in you know, South Australia. You, you took risks and you went over, over to Wellington and, uh, I guess I want to know about, you know, the standard of first-class cricket over there, the Plunkett Shield, and also unpacking what New Zealand cricket's done really well over the last decade because they're now, you know, they're playing a test championship final in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, it's an amazing journey that New Zealand have been on and what they've done, and I was probably part of it, so I'll go into that a bit. But with um, the job in New Zealand, I was 
yeah, pretty lucky to get that opportunity as I just lost my contract at South Australia, but I had my level three and I'd been doing some coaching overseas here in Holland and a little bit in England at uh, minor counties level. So I was very grateful, got that opportunity. And with the journey, for me, I was a, grew up in Sydney and played for, wanted to play for New South Wales, been up playing for South Australia. I think you just got to take opportunities and be a bit brave and take a risk and make a sacrifice like all the players have to do as well. You expect them to sacrifice things and to get to the highest level. So coaches are no different. And to go to New Zealand was was no decision for me to get an opportunity to work with first-class teams. So I ended up working with the, the team as their batting coach for the first few years and high performance. They're running second 11, 19s, et cetera. But the whole program, which should go back to New Zealand, the whole program for my job and others for each um, province was the New Zealand cricket decided to break down their, what's called the academy in the old days, the Centre of Excellence, which was in Canterbury, but and they weren't producing test players from there. So John Wright took over as a high-performance manager and they had a plan, well, what we'll do, we'll have six high-performance coaches to run smaller academies at each province, not bring them all down to Christchurch and put on mostly overseas coaches, fortunately for me, but like Shane Jurgensen, who's now the New Zealand bowling coach, he was the Canterbury coach. Strang, the leg spinner from Zimbabwe, went to Auckland. But most of us from overseas got appointed and put in different provinces to have run a program, an individual-based program on between six to 10 players and really run as individual academies. And if you that started in 2008, nine. And every player, basically, in the New Zealand team has come through that system now. So before not producing any international players, I remember they looked, they had produced one top 20 cricketer from the old academy in something like oh, 10 years. There, for now, it's it's completely opposite. So Kane Williamson, uh, Trent Bolt, Southey, all those guys come through this system. Tom Latham, all that come through this, this program. So I think that was a great step from New Zealand cricket to put that in. And I was obviously lucky enough to get the coaching role for the Wellington side of it. And, and that's probably been the catalyst for where New Zealand are now. Because all those guys came in, well, just outside of the first-class system, but they probably were stronger. Well, definitely in the case of Wellington, all those younger guys in that academy, that the high-performance program that I ran were all stronger, fitter, Faster, keener than guys that were probably been in bit stale playing first class cricket, not going up to test or international cricket and not getting paid well. It sort of brought a professionalism from beneath, which pushed a lot of the older players out of their first class cricket system. So I think that was a huge, huge change and put it made it created a lot of depth at the time in each state or province. And that was a huge change, I think, at where New Zealand cricket are now coming from that. As when I got there, the standard of first-class cricket, all the Kiwi people probably get angry at me, but it wasn't the best. No desperation and aggression in the way teams particularly bowled and field and set their field placings. And the pitches are slightly different. So it was sort of everything was a, like, let's go through the motions for three days until the last days of run chase. And batting last mm. was usually the best thing to do. So it was a very different way of playing first-class cricket. And then some Aussies would come over and you just see the, the intensity lift. But over a period of one or two years, that changed completely and the standard then lifted up. So I think there was a bit of a, um, a hangover from the 2000s when the 
the international team were poor, not much professionalism around the place, and then all things changed around the end of you know, 2008, 9, 10, and then into the last decade. And that's made a massive difference. I think that, you know, the, the way they punch above their weight, you know, 5 million people and yeah, the, the caliber of players they're producing, it's pretty incredible, really. Um, yeah, and I, th- and I think when um, McCallum took over as captain, quite close uh, friends with Grant Elliott, who was in the team at the time, and it was definitely, uh, and it's been publicised a bit, they found their identity a bit more, the way they wanted to play. They, they weren't like Australians. They always had a bit of an English uh, coaching mentality, the way things were, were taught there, the old MCC-style coaching. They couldn't really be the aggressive Australians because they didn't have the, the arsenal of fast bowlers and aggressive players, so they just had to find their way and they wanted to play and what suited the team. And I think McCullum was a catalyst of that and then Kane Williamson is an absolute brilliant leader and an amazing player and great guy and works hard. His game does ticks all the boxes that someone... You want to be a leader of your cricket country, and he's just taken on to a different level. And even someone like Neil Wagner, by 130k half trackers and making blokes scared. I, I'm still trying to get my head around that one, but uh, it's pretty effective. Mate, it, it was probably my worst. Well, I would keep getting blamed as I was a batting coach at Wellington. He took five wickets and an over in a first ass game. So right. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a world record. He just but, stumps it going everywhere and bounces. And yeah. yeah, guys were just, it was basically to our bowlers, but. I was a bad coach who took five wickets and six balls, so well done, coach. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and moving on from New Zealand, you then coached the Bangladesh women's cricket team, which I'm sure was a fascinating experience. That was in the 2014 T20 World Cup. What are some of your recollections of that experience and the opportunities and the support that female cricketers get in, in Bangladesh? Words can't describe how much of an amazing experience that was and learning experience for me. Being over there, I hadn't coached much women's cricket previous, so... That was always going to be a bit of a challenge. And the Bangladesh girls, the only reason they were in the World Cup final, well, in the World Cup itself, because they were hosting. So they'd never been in the World Cup before. They'd only had a few games. They'd played South Africa a few times. And basically, the women's game was not a thing they really cared about over there. And not much support was given around the women's team at all. But because they're hosting a World Cup, I guess they thought they'd better get their finger out and do something. Yeah. And we had a great journey with that team and those girls were amazing. I learned a lot from them. Hopefully they learned something from me. And we had a good World Cup. We beat Sri Lanka. We had England like five for, four for 80 or four for 60. We missed a stumping. Charlotte Edwards, she got 80. I'll never forget that. Still having sleepless nights over that because <laughs> I thought we are going to win that. Um, yeah, so we played really well and it was a great, that was probably a good turning point for the women's game over there. And now they've got a lot of support as the women's game should around the world. But it was probably, yeah, not considered a priority for that. And, and a lot of the girls, particularly of the higher class or middle class Bangladesh community were really not allowed to play cricket or as more girls from the lower class areas coming through. I guess they were... They didn't really care. They just wanted to play cricket and growing up in the streets with their brothers and cousins and friends, they just played with the boys all the time. So it was interesting stories, interesting backgrounds on some of them and uh, amazing individual stories to, to get where they were. And But now they've got a lot, of, um, a lot of support and it was great to see them win the Asian Cup, I think about three years ago. They beat India in the final. Probably gone a little bit backwards and now they had a poor World Cup in Australia last, last year. I was over there and I caught up with them for the first time and since I left 
but as coach, that was good to see. But they were, yeah, they were a bit disappointed about their performance. But we're playing them in the December, so hopefully they can lift their performance after that. Playing for the Dieter Cup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully the Dutchies can bring that home for us. Let's, let's hope so. <laughs> and with Vanuatu cricket, I reckon you pretty much put on the map, mate. You were you were the coach there, CEO, and you even uh, came out of retirement after a hip replacement to go around a couple of years ago as well as a player. What are some of the success stories that you know really resonate with you and uh, you know from your time in Vanuatu? Unbelievable, yeah, six years, as you said. Learn a lot, and that's why I wanted to go there because I was high performance manager and that being the CEO. So it was a big journey for me off the field and learn how things work and upgrade my skills from failing high school and not studying since to being a CEO was a big difference. Reading spreadsheets and knowing how to write them. So there's one learning uh, I had to do, but um, the highlights is as many to to think about. But just when you go there now and you see the facilities that we've got. You know, the games have been live streamed. We did that great tournament last year. I had you know, 17 million people follow it live stream around the world. Players go to Australia now. Well, that was always what I wanted to judge the players on. If they could go to Australia and play Premier Cricket, men's and women's, I know we've got school cricketers. And we've had many a guy, as you know, Patrick Matatava for you, you boys at Essendon. Um, and a lot of girls as well gone over and done really well. So the talent is there, and that's probably a good achievement to get the girls and men to that level uh, of cricket skill. And then some of the tournaments we played uh, to get promotion from Division 5 to 4 when Patrick just dismantled uh, Germany, scoring 130 out of 70 balls, and then we beat Italy, who have a few guys from... Melbourne in their team, mm-hmm. Carl Sandry. Peter Petricola. Yep. Yeah, so they were a much favoured team. That scored 300-plus every game, that tournament, and hadn't lost a game, and then we beat them in the sort of semi-final to get promotion. So that was definitely the highlight. And Patrick's father just passed away not long before that. So looking at him pointing to the sky when he made 100 and hit the winning runs for us was a probably very, very memorable moment um, I can think of right now. So yeah, it's, it's a great yeah, photo, awesome. that one. Yeah, yeah and, you know, as you know him, he's a great human being as well, a super talent, and hopefully he gets an opportunity at a higher level, a T20 comp somewhere around the world, which I've always been trying, but not, not opening any doors for him lately. You should never have favourites as a coach, but my goodness, he was uh, right <laughs> up there for me. He was a uh, champion guy and, you know, and made the jump to Premier Cricket. You know, he was in and out of our first level. We had a pretty strong t- uh, team at, at Essen at the time, and Definitely up to it and, and uh, super competitor in, in his quiet natured way. Yeah, and I think with he got that injury last time he was there, which really ki- killed his uh, chances of pushing for something higher and really being a mainstay of your team at Essendon. And yeah, it was a big shame for the big fella. But, you know, he's, I think what did he score for us against Malaysia? I think it's the 14th fastest T20 international 100. And he was on Sky Sports where they were talking about who's got the fastest, right. stri- the best strike rate in or most runs in T20 nationals or something. And it was Patrick Watatava from Vanuatu. I've got that on Twitter. So, <laughs> so that's a, it's a amazing guy. And there's more of him in Vanuatu. Um, Nala Nipika, the, the now captain, uh, he's coming through exactly the same way. And there's a few younger guys and girls coming through who uh, could definitely replicate what Paddy's done. Well, not taken to another level. So. 
hopefully they will get more opportunities to go overseas and play in Oz sooner rather than later. Uh, no, it's a great legacy that you've left there. And I mean, what, what do they need to do now? What's the next step for them to, you know, to continue rising the ranks of the ICC division structure? Yeah, it's such a, well, COVID hasn't helped because they need international cricket. The new coach, Jeremy Bray, outstanding individual, outstanding coach, known since the schoolboy days. He was a great player in his own right. Should have probably played for Australia. Didn't end up playing too much for New South Wales, but obviously played for Ireland. He will take them to another level, I'm sure. And a new CEO in Tim Cutler, who's got a lot of experience in ICC and associate cricket. So the, the frameworks for them, those two guys, to really take the cricket to another level is there. What we're trying to develop was cricket tourism. So we can't afford to take the players over to Australia or anywhere else all the time. So we wanted to create a great facility within Vanuatu where Premier Club teams, other social club teams as well, but more probably around the Premier teams, uh, high performance, under-19s, et cetera, and from New Zealand can go to Vanuatu and play some good cricket. And that will give the, the men and women some quality opposition um, and be tested their skills on a more regular basis and learn more about the game. And that's probably where we struggle the most is just the game sense and identifying uh, crunch times in a match and when they're bringing our best bowlers back or when they bring their best bowlers back, get through that period. And those sort of little game sense things that we probably take for granted in Australia sometimes. But only playing games and being put in enough situations can really develop that. And that's what we need to do more. To say, but taking the team overseas is virtually impossible. It's about you know twenty thousand plus every time you leave the airport. So that's so that was if that can develop and COVID, we we're just launching that when COVID hit. So absolutely killed that yeah. idea. We had lots of interest from around not Australia, New Zealand, and other parts of the world too that come into Vanuatu. So if that comes off, I think that will be a huge a huge turning point in that side of the cricket. Uh, the more professionalism is coming in. Obviously, you always want more funding, but that will come over time. And then the individuals themselves having a chance to go to Australia and play, like you got Paddy a few times and really helped him. We need other individuals like yourself to support some players and you know help them out and help them get to Australia and look after them and give them some opportunities, which a lot of clubs have around, around Australia for sure. But we just need more of that, and that will definitely help the individual side of things as well. And your point around them needing to play more and more to get better. I mean, some of those players that uh, came down to Australia, or, um, you know, Melbourne, Paddy Matatava and Simpson Obed and Trevor Langer, Ronald Tari, they might have been mid-20s, late-20s, but in actual cricketing terms, they were late, you know, late-teens, early-20s, the amount of yeah. cricket that actually played. Yeah. And that's where – and that was one thing when I did get there, I sort of – I had about seven players away that first year, and then I stopped them going for a period of time because – when they do go away, they're still going to be self-sufficient. Monday to Friday, sitting at home. Yeah, I think the ICC gave them some gym memberships sometime at somewhere, but none of them have ever been in a gym before, so they're never going to set their foot inside that gym. So we really had to educate them at all the other things off the field so they know their own game a bit more, they know what makes them perform, what their diet should be, all those little things add up. And that's something that I really worked on for the first 12 months. So, yeah, send them away. But you know, a couple of those guys come back worse being away in Australia because you know, no disrespect to Subby's cricket, but they were training once a week uh, or maybe twice a week. But then they didn't know they had to do extra. So they Subby's cricket is great for our guys to go play, 
But guys got to understand they've got to find a friend and do extra training, do some extra fitness, eat properly. Those sort of things we had to change that culture and I think that got better and that will probably definitely help them travel a bit more. Now the younger players coming through are learning their responsibilities as, as international cricketers and when they play club cricket, that these little things they've got to make sure they're doing it always and all the time. Some of those training programs, you know, that was sent back in the early days, I reckon they uh, reached those, the inbox of those players and the boys just click delete. We'll see you in six months. Yeah. So, yeah, well, half of the guys don't, uh, don't uh, have email addresses or they change <laughs> Facebook every three days anyway. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> communicating was near impossible. Now, you've coached both men and women at the highest level. I'm interested in the difference between coaching women compared to men. What are some of the things you need to alter around your communication? You know, how hard you might get with the playing group? Is it exactly the same? I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts around this. I think there's only a few subtle differences. I think cricket's cricket. And one of the things I have learned, and then going to different countries, cricket is cricket no matter where you are. The way you deliver messages is definitely slightly different. But even still, I could give a rocket to a couple of girls here, which I wouldn't want to do to a couple of men somewhere else because they might not have handled it well. Back to what I said about Tady and Lehman and telling the players, it's also individual and they're also different. You can't really put a blanket thing around how they need to train. I know one thing I used to say to the Bangladesh girls, which is probably not PC correct, but I kept telling them they can't throw like girls, they've got to throw like men. (laughs) 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 Just stop throwing like girls. So they they always laughed them, but uh, it improved that aspect. (laughs) I think that, yeah, subtle differences in just knowing the game. I think there's, um, I think the women's game's changed a bit now and there's a bit more skill sets very similar to the men. But I like back in 2014 in particular was an offside play and be able to punish players through the offside, hitting over cover. Those sort of areas weren't big. Women's crit was a bit more leg side dominant, particularly at lower levels. But you watch the Australian girls now, they smack sixes over cover for fun. So I think that's changed a lot. And it's pretty much the same skill set and the same techniques. So now being in the Netherlands, it's not a whole lot of difference. I think... Talking to Dutch women to Bangladesh girls is a more different than talking to men and women in general. You know, every time you walked in the training in Bangladesh, all the girls would stand up and call you sir and not say anything. Whereas a lot, I get a lot of feedback from the girls in the Dutch team. There are lots of questions and definitely not shy to express their opinions, which is good. And in Vanuatu, it's different again. The guys would hardly say anything, but mm. the the Dutch girls are a lot more. So I could actually talk a lot more here and communicate with them more and say more things. So I think the culture of the country is probably what the point I can make here is more different than actually the men and the women. And language barriers also are very different. But the girls are just as hunger or more hungry here than those men's teams. I think the other difference is they've got you know, nine to five jobs and study I've got so many doctors and lawyers and dentists in my team. It's unbelievable. Mm. Definitely the, I definitely got the lowest IQ out of everyone in the team. But that's okay. But yeah, definitely look after you, mate. Mates rates there yeah, as well. Yeah, well, yeah. One hit replacement. I'm sure I've got plenty more injuries to come. I, need. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely need an orthopedic surgeon. And your coaching journey is sort of taking you off the, the beaten track. You've you've taken risks and very much the road less travelled. So what advice would you give the coaches in choosing the right career opportunities for them? 
as I said before, like players, you've got to be prepared to sacrifice if you want to go the highest level. You've got to know where you want to go and know what your goal is. But near impossible, particularly maybe in footy and those other codes, slightly different. But as a cricket coach, there's only a few jobs per state in Australia, for example. So if you're not willing to travel, it's going to be tough to to get those opportunities because you've got so many coaches at club level all want to probably coach for Victoria or South Australia or whatever. So it's really tough. I don't think you can sit and expect it all to fall in your lap. And to get those opportunities, I think it's a good idea to go away and just do some coach development for free. Even if you had to pay your own way or just don't make money out of it, go to England for a few weeks and try to hang out with a county team. Even just volunteer your time at a big bash club or similar just to get your skills and just keep um, – because that's the, probably the best CV you can have is your experience of working with you. So you've got to put yourself out there and try to get as much experience and see, let as many people see you as possible. And one day – you keep knocking on the door. One day a door will open, that's, that's for sure. It's not easy because it's a very competitive market. I said like the women's Dutch – Job here is 92 applicants around the world. And I know other jobs have had hundreds of applicants. So it's not an easy, easy business to get into. The other thing I reckon you need to know is to know your philosophy and what type of coach you want to be. Um, you definitely can't be an expert on everything. And you've got to be um, not try to bullshit your way through with areas you don't know. You've got to try to source people who do know and get them involved and probably leave your ego, I guess, at home when you want to coach and learn from other people and just try to expand your knowledge all the time. But someone's always going to know more than you in every department. So be open and try to get all that information and then deliver it best to your, your players you can. But it's definitely, you need to be flexible and willing to learn and say willing to sacrifice and make some life-changing decisions. And I think experiencing different cultures and going around the world really enables you to develop different skills. And in Bangladesh, I remember I did three presentations in this beautiful big theatre at the stadium. And it was like, everyone was glued to every word I was saying. Everyone was loving it. And I thought, hey, how good is this? I'm killing this job. And then one of the girls said, um, no, sir, just want to let you know, no one's understanding one word you say. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I better better change all that. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm at home. I'm at home explaining to every girl exactly what you said through the, every meeting. It's like, okay, okay. Let's let's go through that again. That's that's got to yeah. be tough, though, isn't it? Like, and do you speak Dutch, Dietzy? I'm not sure if you speak Dutch, actually. Uh, no, a little bit, but yeah. um, no, everyone's got such good English here. But right, know, yeah, of course. Trying to yeah. learn, but yeah, everyone's got amazing. They speak better English than Australians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except my mum. My mum's Dutch. I'm still trying to work out what she's saying. <laughs> Mate, it's been great having you chat. I think your journey is amazing, well-travelled, risk-taker, and, and you've made an impact uh, on, on people's lives and, and their cricket. So uh, well done, and I'm sure there's many chapters to write. So thanks for your time on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, mate, and very kind words, and I guess that's why we all coach. Hey? We want to impact people. So, yeah, it's been a great journey. And uh, good luck on the podcast. and. I'll be following it from now on. Thanks, DT. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching in Clubland. A shout out to the talented Aidan Arandes for putting together our podcast theme song. 
If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Feel free to leave a rating and review. To catch the latest updates from the podcast, check us out on Facebook or on Twitter at Coaching Club Pod. Thanks again and catch you around in Clubland.